Hello and a warm welcome to this latest edition of Are We There Yet? The Project Edward podcast. My name's James Luckhurst, but it's my pleasure this week to be handing the responsibilities to Simon Turner from Driving for Better Business. Now, Simon takes a detailed look at the topic of fatigue in the company of Dr. Paul Jackson, a chartered psychologist specialising in human performance who has assisted safety-critical organisations to implement fatigue risk management systems for more than 20 years. Paul was an expert witness in a recent landmark legal case in which the Office of Rail and Road successfully prosecuted an employer for health and safety breaches as a result of two of its employees being killed in a road traffic collision where driver fatigue was identified as the primary cause. This successful criminal prosecution demonstrated that having policies and procedures on fatigue management is not enough. In this episode, Paul talks to Simon about the events leading up to the crash, what the company did wrong and why it was prosecuted, the key lessons for employers to take away from the case, and where to start when looking at fatigue management. Setting the scene for us then, Simon Turner. We're going to talk today about a double fatality due to driver fatigue that ultimately led to the successful prosecution of the company that employed the two uh, who died. Now, Zach Payne was a trainee welder who was just 20 years old. He worked for a company called Renown Consultants and was driving a company van at the time of the crash. And he had his 48-year-old colleague, Michael Morris, sat next to him in the front of the van. Now, Paul, um, you were involved in that case as an expert witness. and. Mm-hmm the outcome should have significant implications for uh, employers. I was wondering if perhaps you could start by just giving us an outline of the events that led up to this particular crash. Sure. So um, the events that led to the renowned prosecution occurred on uh, the night of 18th to the 19th of June back in 2013. Uh, In the early hours of Wednesday, the 19th of June, Two welders you mentioned, uh, Zach Payne and Michael Morris, were killed when their van, uh, the van they were traveling in, crashed into an articulated lorry, which had been parked in a lay-by on the A1. Uh, They had been on their way back to Doncaster after a night shift in Stevenage in Hertfordshire. The the previous day, the day before the incident, uh, so that's Tuesday, 18th of June, uh, Zach, Zach Payne had driven another renowned crew up to a place called Alnuth in Northumberland. Uh, he'd left Doncaster, where the depot was, at 4.15 in the morning. And that crew arrived at around 7.30 in the morning and waited for the job to start. But for various reasons, that job was cancelled. And so Zach Payne then drove the crew back to Doncaster, um, arriving at around three in the afternoon. In the meantime, an urgent job had come in Uh, which required two more welders for a job near Stevenage, a place called Langley Junction. And that job was going to happen on the 18th to 19th, so that Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. The the company, Renown, allocated uh, Michael Morris as the senior welder, and the only person they could find uh, as the assistant was Zach Payne. So they were allocated to do the job, and they set off for Langley Junction at around 7.15 in the evening. 
they, uh, Mr. Morris was driving and they arrived at Langley Junction at around quarter to 10 in the evening. They had to wait to take possession of the railway um, and that happened from about 11.15. They completed their tasks and then set off on their journey home just after 3.30 in the morning. And this time it was Zach Payne who was driving. At about 5.30 in the morning, the van had been traveling north on the A1 and strayed off the carriageway to its near side and into a lay-by where the articulated lorry was parked. Their van hit the articulated lorry and unfortunately, tragically, both Michael Morris and Zach Payne were killed. At the time of that collision, Zach Payne, the driver, had been up for around 26 hours. So in this case, the prosecution was brought by the Office of Rail and Road rather than the, the Health and Safety Executive. Mm -hmm. um, but Renown was still prosecuted under the Health and Safety at Work Act. So could you sort of just explain what it was they were actually prosecuting mm. for, please? Sure. So they were um, prosecuted on three breaches of health and safety regulations, the 1974 Health and Safety at Work Act, and the 1992 Managing uh, the Safety of uh, the Workforce Act. So the first breach was failures to manage the fatigue of that workforce. Secondly, for exposing employees and non-employees to the risk of injury arising out of fatigue. And thirdly, for failing to make a suitable and sufficient risk assessment before these two particular employees were sent out on that night shift. Um, so, I mean, fatigue was clearly identified in this case as the primary cause <clears throat> of these fatalities. But, you know, in the rail industry, fatigue is well known as a, as a risk because they've got a large workforce. They're mm -hmm. often operating at night because that's when the, the tracks are free for maintenance uh, or, or they're doing shift work. So what went wrong in this case on the management side? Did they, did they have a system for managing fatigue? They had procedures. They had, I suppose, the, uh, the rudimentary elements of a fatigue management system. Um, certainly, they were not without uh, procedures. The, uh, the procedures they had included um, a policy, fatigue management policy, uh, procedures for uh, assessing the risks associated with uh, fatigue, and particularly the um, procedure to um, authorise excess hours. So where somebody was being requested to work longer hours than normal, they had an, um, an authorisation form that was meant to be completed as a result of a, a risk assessment. What went wrong was that the company didn't follow its own fatigue management procedures. In addition to that, they didn't comply with the working time limits for safety critical work, such as welding, which require that there should be a minimum rest period of 12 hours between booking off from a turn of duty to booking on the next duty. In addition to that, they didn't conduct a sufficient and suitable risk assessment, particularly of the fatigue of Zach Payne, who, as I mentioned, had been awake for a considerable length of time, even before starting this job. Um, you see quite a lot of companies, uh, or a, a broad spread of attitudes, shall we say, among companies to risk, where uh, at one end you have 
a total disregard, don't care, not interested in, in managing risk. It, it kind of just doesn't register. All we care about is running the business up to the mm-hmm. other end where, you know, r- managing risk is s- central to the business and nothing happens unless it's done the correct way. Um, and kind of in the middle, you you often have uh, people who maybe kind of know, want to do the right thing, but they maybe haven't got the t- time or they're under pressure or they don't have the mm-hmm. experience to do it properly. Where Are you able to sort of say where Renown's management sort of fitted on that scale? Um, yes, and I think perhaps it's better for me to um, refer to the sentencing remarks of the judge in this particular case, his honour Judge Gosmark. Um, in his sentencing remarks, he said that he was satisfied that if Renown had followed their fatigue management procedures, uh, if they'd implemented them, that would have amounted to all that was reasonably practicable to negate the risk of injury through fatigue. But it was in the implementation of those procedures that Renown failed their employees. He went on to say that the operations managers at Doncaster knew what they were supposed to do in managing the safety of their employees particularly in relation to fatigue, but only lip service was paid to these systems. He concluded that there was a willful blindness of operations managers when it came to considerations of fatigue, particularly in relation to driving times and the distances to and from jobs. He also said that um, evidence from the employees, other renowned employees, suggested that safety briefings could be perfunctory, and concentrated on getting ticks in boxes. Um, I think one of the other damning elements of the case was that although Renown was subject to annual audits from an independent third party, those audits didn't shine a light on the way in which those procedures, those stated procedures, were actually being applied or not applied. And as a consequence, Renown failed to prove that they were doing all that was reasonably practicable to implement those written fatigue procedures. So, you know, you have a weight of evidence there which suggests that, um, you know, this is a box ticking exercise. Um, The management didn't really take fatigue seriously and it probably suggests issues with the culture of the organization. Um, And I think this is, not confined to Renown, who weren't a bad company and they're still um, operating today. So, um, you know, clearly doing a lot right. But um, I think many organisations fail on this level, whereby they they may well have procedures written on a whole range of issues, uh, safety issues, but they need to be collecting the data documenting their actions so that they can demonstrate to the regulator that they are following those procedures. Mm. Um, that, that attitude that you said was prevalent among the operations managers, um, mm. I, I, I'm assuming that was sort of just below board level. Was that attitude reflected with the sort of the senior management of, of the business? Very much so. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the operations management uh, were specifically referred to by the judge, and uh, it was clear that <clears throat> that same attitude 
even persisted during the trial. Um, I think one of the, the comments that the judge made was that despite this incident having occurred in 2013 and changes having been made subsequently to procedures and particularly to Renown's policy on fatigue, um, that wasn't the change that was needed. Uh, the paperwork was adequate, he said. It was the implementation that needed to be looked at. Essentially, what was needed was a change in the culture of the senior management team. I think you referred to it as a tick box culture before, and you know that kind of thing is not just restricted for, to fatigue, is it? We, we sort of see that in many companies um, for many different elements of um, risk management as well. Um, there was a, one thing that struck me when you were outlining the events running up to the incident was mm -hmm. while Zach Payne was driving at the time of the crash, you said, I think Michael Morris, his colleague, was driving to that second job that uh, Zach yeah. was on. So was that Michael Morris's first shift or had he also been sort of at work for as long as Zach had? Uh, no, he'd, he'd rested the day, uh, that day. He'd... Um, he hadn't worked in the same way that Zach had. He had already been scheduled to work that night shift, so he was probably better, better prepared or had the opportunity to be better prepared. I think one of the big problems with uh, Zach Payne's situation was he was given very little notice of this, uh, this night duty and clearly not enough time to prepare adequately to be sufficiently rested before undertaking that night duty. Uh, and clearly he he would have been potentially at risk carrying out the work because he was fatigued but i was i was intrigued because michael morris was plainly insured on the van if he drove to the job so i was just wondering why michael morris didn't drive on the way home as zach must have been you know, clearly overtired yes and i think um the uh, i think there's an informal arrangement whereby where one drove on the way, the other drove on the way back. Um, that seemed to have been a fairly standard practice within the organisation at that time. One of the reasons Zach took on this extra shift, I believe, is uh, that Renown was also um, found guilty of creating a, um, a staff payment structure, if you like, that, that encouraged its employees to take on extra shifts and so he took on that extra shift because it, he would have been allowed to earn extra money and I, th I think you um you mentioned that they had a policy of uh around the authorization of excess hours so mm -hmm. you know presumably that one of the management processes should have prevented him saying yes to that shift or, or more more to the point should have prevented him being asked in the first place well i think the the, the the policy you're alluding to really is their zero hours contract. So there was an incentive to work fatigued because of course, when they weren't working, they weren't getting paid. So obviously that creates an incentive to take any shifts that are given to you, particularly for a young man like Zach, who was keen to, uh, keen to um, keep in with his employers. Uh, he was keen to get his uh, his welding qualification. He'd been given um, indication that he would be put on the next welder's course if he 
you know, did as he was asked. So he was very keen to, A, take on extra duties, um, B, to do everything he could to you know, keep his, his management happy. Um, and unfortunately, the side effect of that is there's an incentive to hide fatigue um, and to continue working even when fatigue might be an issue. Yeah. Um, now, there were, the, the management failures weren't just around um, fatigue. There were also problems around the driver checks, I think, weren't there? Because um, Zach wasn't in, uh, really insured to be driving the van in the first place, I don't think. Yeah, they had um, their insurance policy required drivers to be over 25 uh, to be covered by the insurance. Uh, Zach was only 20. Clearly, he was not um, insured uh, or covered by the insurance. But that seemed to be quite endemic within the organisation to the extent that on the, uh, the previous duty, the early duty that Zach, where Zach drove up to Northumberland, um, none of the crew in that vehicle were over 25 and qualified to drive. So, you know, clearly there was, there was no possibility that they could follow their procedures um, or their insurance policy procedures um, for that particular duty. So yeah. it, was, it was, yeah, definitely a, a frequent occurrence, even though um, at the trial, I think the, the management maintained that they were unaware of that. Uh, I think the general view of the court was that that was probably not the case. But didn't I? I'm, I'm sure I read as well that they um, investigating authorities had interviewed a number of other staff within the business who backed up that that was a regular occurrence. That, yeah, absolutely. Because yes. uh, that's something I've brought up many times when I've been discussing the, the sort of the possibility of a of a prosecution mm. and the things that. Uh, employers need to be aware of is that then the investigating authorities aren't just in investigating your policies and procedures and what you did they will go and interview every you know other people in the company in the company and they'll mm -hmm. typically find some of the most disaffected employees mm -hmm. um who will tell it like it is so you know there's very little opportunity for you to try and cover up something that actually is you know, widespread practice within the business. And I think that's um, very much the case with this particular investigation. Um, as I said, this, this investigation lasted seven years. During that time, uh, the ORR interviewed, I think, about 70 or 80 different witnesses. Um, the, you know, the witness bundle runs to nearly 2,000 pages. Um, uh, it was clearly a very in-depth investigation. It, it didn't just stop with witnesses from within the organisation, but also witnesses from uh, other organisations, people who'd been on site at the time, um, but also things like phone records, uh, hotel records to see whether um, employees were being given hotels after night duties, which was, again, one of their written um, mitigations for managing fatigue. Um, a whole range of, of data was collected and analysed. Um, so, yeah, a very, very uh, thorough investigation. Um, 
Well, there was one bit about this case that particularly staggered me, and you mentioned in your introduction at the start that the initial, uh, the the original crash happened in in June 2013. So the, mm. the the fact that the length of time for the investigation and uh, prosecution was a full seven years for that to be concluded because uh, I think the verdict was announced in March 2020 and then the sentencing was in June. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, a full seven years under the stress of that investigation and prosecution. What did you see what kind of effect that had on on those who were involved in the incident? Um, To a certain extent, yes. I mean, you can only imagine the... uh the stress, the anxiety, the the impact on every aspect of your your psychology, if you like, that um, having a case like that hanging over your head for that length of time must have had on those individuals. Um, I I think it was was evident at the trial this was clearly something that had been going on for so long, the impact was inevitably going to be you know, quite profound in terms of its impact on their um, stress levels, if nothing else. Um, but of course, all of that pales into insignificance by comparison with the impact of the, the families of uh, those individuals who were killed tragically. But um, yeah, it's clear that it, 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 the prosecution and the consequences of the prosecution aren't limited to you know, the fines that were imposed upon the company. I think the, the longer term impact on the management of that company um, would be equally uh, damaging, I suppose, and difficult to cope with. Yes, absolutely. And, and without trying to minimise the, um, the, the stress and trauma that the family went mm. through, as a, you know, as a business owner, that's got to be an incentive to to do this properly to to manage it um properly um now i'm sure we've got many employers listening to the podcast now who know that fatigue is an issue in their business and maybe we've got somewhere it isn't recognized perhaps to the to the level it should be what what do you think are the main takeaways for employers from this particular incident mm-hmm. um uh, there are a few, certainly. I think maybe the first starting point is, as you said, you know, employers who recognise that fatigue is affecting their business. Well, can you articulate that? Uh, what is it that you do that might be contributing to fatigue? What are the fatigue-related hazards um, to the safety of your employees? That's the starting point. So is it because you're operating at night, like this company were? Um, you do long hours, um, whatever it might be, identifying the contributors to fatigue is, is the starting point for me. Secondly, thinking about what are the worst case scenarios, what could go wrong if an employee was exposed to fatigue. And then once you've identified those um, beginning and end points, if you like, the next step really is to be able to understand and identify what controls you have in place to prevent that contributor to fatigue resulting in an employee experiencing fatigue. So do you have sufficient uh, controls in place for each potential contributor? How robust are those controls? Uh, How 
likely are they to be subject to degradation over time? Then in the worst case scenario where an individual does experience a fatigue, where your controls have failed, what mitigations do you have in place to prevent that fatigue resulting in the worst case scenario? For example, a, a traffic accident. Um, and I think only when you can answer those questions adequately uh, as an employer, as the accountable manager of an organisation, it's only then that you can really sleep safely and recognise that you're doing everything you can to as reasonably practicable um, to, to manage and negate the risk of injury through fatigue. But the starting point for all of that is, is getting the culture right within the organisation. I think one of the main failings of the renown uh, business at the time of this incident was that lack of um, uh, safety culture around fatigue. It, you know, it wasn't recognised in the way it should be. And as the judge said, you know, paying lip service to the systems they had written, um, that's where the main failings are. And that's where I think an organisation really needs to start its, its um, more effective management of fatigue. Um, does it, uh, the fact that they had the policies um, shows that obviously they were clearly aware fatigue was an issue that needed to be managed mm. and that they didn't follow those policies um, led to the accident. But So, oh, yeah, obviously, if you weren't aware fatigue was a problem, you could have still had uh, a similar accident. But does the fact that they sort of demonstrated they knew that it was an issue by creating the policies, that's almost worse, isn't it? Because it, it makes the the failure a willful failure. Yes, I can I can see where you're going with that. Um, very much so that, you know, as the, as the judge referred to it, a willful blindness of the operations managers when it came to considerations of fatigue. So yeah, they, they recognized that what they were doing was likely to cause fatigue or contribute to fatigue. Um, but other matters got in the way of the effective management of that, that issue. Um, and I think, you know, that even though they had procedures in place, um, it was clear that the operations staff at the Doncaster depot, at least, didn't really understand um, how to use those procedures, um, which all con contributed to that idea that this was just you know, ticking a box to say, yes, we've got procedures in place, they're compliant with the regulations. Um, but of course, as you say, the, um, the fact they recognised those uh, fatigue as an issue and had stated that this is how they managed it and then failed to do so was doubly damning i suppose is the one way of looking at it yeah you you, you mentioned in when we were talking about the um, staff contract structure and the incentivization of working extra hours that they were on zero hours contracts mm. is is that a common thing in other sectors for instance where that could cause driver fatigue to be an issue I think um, in the last few years, there's been increased recognition of the, the prevalence of uh, what they call the gig economy, um, which is essentially is founded on you know, multiple zero hours contracts. So having several different uh, jobs with different employers, but each of those being a zero hours contract. Um, I think, yes, it is 
more prevalent than it used to be. Um, whether it's more prevalent in certain industries than others, uh, probably in the road transport sector, certainly in you know, deliveries, delivery uh, drivers, for example. Um, and then I know there have been cases where um, organisations have been challenged on um, you know, the nature of their contracts with their employees, um, partly on the basis that you know, it's not an effective management of, of the health and safety of those individuals who, to all intents and purposes, are uh, you know, under the control of that employer. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's certainly increased in prevalence in recent times. And I don't think it's a healthy uh, situation, as this case really demonstrates, tragically. Yes. Um, I just I wanted to ask you a final question just about um, fatigue more broadly, I guess. Um, and that's where... How conscious do employers sorry how conscious do employers need to be around staff's maybe personal situations where it might not be obvious that the job itself is causing fatigue but if the job involves driving and you know circumstances in the employee's personal lives might mm -hmm. cause fatigue in another way they might have sleep apnea they might have young children that keep them awake at night they might have other sort of anxieties or mental or worries going on that, that cause them mental uh strain in other ways and, and prevent them sleeping properly how how much do employers need to take account of those kind of issues isn't it? I think um, there's only so much that an organisation can do um, in terms of managing fatigue within the business and there is always going to be uh, a requirement for the individual to take some responsibility for their personal uh, fitness for duty. It's clear that fatigue doesn't just originate from uh, either one source or the other. There are, clearly there are um, contributors to fatigue associated with the operational practices, as was the case with this particular um, uh, company. But there will also be a whole range of contributors to fatigue, potentially, which originate in the personal life of the individual, their lifestyle, their health, um, uh, social activities, etc., etc. The conventional approach to addressing that potential problem or weakness in the system is to ensure that the culture is right around honest and open reporting. So you know, we often talk in, in fatigue management circles, we often talk about um, the importance of shared responsibility. So the employer has a responsibility to um, provide time off uh, and adequate time to enable individuals to obtain sufficient sleep. The equivalent responsibility for the individual is to use that time to, to obtain adequate sleep. Um, secondly, the, the employer has a responsibility to take seriously any reports of fatigue that are brought to their attention and to put in place the, um, the mechanisms, if you like, the framework, be it a form, or um, you know, a reporting system which gives individuals the opportunity to come forward and 
uh, you know, to hold their hand up and say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm too fatigued. Um, but uh, the same to- by the same token, the individuals within the organization, the employees, have an equivalent responsibility, which is to, to do so, to hold their hand up and say, uh, you know, personal factors outside of work may be contributing to my fatigue. And that all requires, for many organizations, quite a significant change in culture. I can well believe that some of the people listening to this podcast would think, well, that's never going to happen in my organization. People don't hold their hand up and say they're fatigued. Um, If that's the case, if you truly believe that, then you certainly need to do something to to try and address that issue because that's always going to be a barrier. If you you don't have the information and people don't feel comfortable to come forward with that information, then how do you know what your fatigue risk truly is? Dr. Paul Jackson was talking to Simon Turner from Driving for Better Business, and we're delighted to offer a shout out for Simon's excellent lineup of podcast episodes, which you can find on the Driving for Better Business website. Thanks to Simon and, of course, to Dr. Paul Jackson for your expertise and insight. And that concludes this week's episode of Are We There Yet? The Project Edward podcast. We'll be back with a fresh new episode next week when we'll be welcoming Professor Nick Reed and considering what we want from technology and mobility. But for now, from me and the Project Edward team, it's goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>